0: Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event.
1: Hello and welcome to the Institute for Government for this event to reflect on the Treasury's role during the COVID pandemic and what can be learned from that experience, both for future crises and for normal policymaking. I'm the IFG's Chief Economist, Gemma Tetlow, and one of the authors of a recent report that we've put out looking at exactly this question. Um, and I'm delighted that my colleague, Ollie Bartram, is joining us on the panel today to present some of our findings from that work. Um, But I'm also very pleased that we are joined by, uh, well, we will be joined by four other expert panellists um, to help us reflect on some of these questions and provide some other perspectives Mm. on the Treasury's role during the pandemic and what lessons can be learned from that experience. So hopefully joining us very soon will be Rishnara Ali, who is MP for Bethnal Green and Bow and a member of the Treasury Select Committee. We also have Charlie Bean, who is Professor of Economics at LSE and served on the Budget Responsibility Committee of the OBR during the pandemic. We have Tracy Brown, who's the Director of Sense About Science. And joining us uh, from the US, um, we're very pleased to have Sir Charles Roxburgh, who until last summer was Second Permanent Secretary at the Treasury. Um, So thank you very much for joining us uh, from the US as Mm -hmm. well, Charles, particularly so early in the morning there.
2: Um,
1: A few brief housekeeping notes before we get started. Please do start sending in your questions via Slido, particularly if you're watching from home. Um, And if you're happy to tell us uh, what your name is and what organisation you're joining us from, that'd be very interesting uh, to know who we're speaking to. We'll also be live tweeting this event from at IFG events using the hashtag, hashtag IFG Treasury. Um, So please do follow and tweet along as well. Um, but without further ado, I'll hand over to Ollie for a brief presentation of some of the main findings from our report on this subject.
3: Great. Uh, thanks very much, Shimmer, and thanks everyone for uh, joining us today. I'm going to take you on a very quick tour through the main findings from our report and look forward to uh, further discussion with the panelists after. So I think it's worth starting with why we wrote this. Um, we're interested in the COVID response because it reveals how effectively the government prepares for and reacts to crises, and by testing the limits of institutions also offers some lessons about day-to-day policymaking, too. We're doing it now because we think lessons should be learned quickly. Uh, The COVID inquiry will examine these issues in in greater detail than than we've managed to. Um, But we think it's important to learn the big lessons quickly. And we hope that this work will inform the inquiry to some extent as well. And we've looked at the Treasury because it's a very important part of the centre of government and was very influential during the pandemic and uh, its uh, contributions have possibly received less attention than the health response so far, so hoping to shine a bit of a light on that. In terms of what aspects of the Treasury's response we look at, there are We've limited our our focus so we can uh, focus on the most uh, important issues. The first is the Treasury's design of economic support policies uh, and then working with other parts of government, uh, including HMRC and banks, uh, then delivering those schemes. Um, And then the other aspect, which is Chapter 3 of our report, is how the Treasury contributed to central decision-making during the pandemic on overall response, so on decisions around restrictions and that sort of thing. Um, How I'm going to present the story to you today very briefly is in three phases of decision-making, which we outline in our report. Uh, So I'll go through the first phase first which we define as between sort of March and May 2020, so those very early weeks and months of the pandemic. Context here is that there was high uncertainty, very low information and a lot of fear. In this context, the PM and Cabinet decided to impose a lockdown And the Treasury's role in this phase uh, was sort of largely reacting to or supporting that decision to lock down. And the focus was very much on economic support policies rather than trying to push for big changes to the overall pandemic strategy. Um, I've included this chart because I want to emphasize the speed and the scale of the response. Just in March and April, uh, uh, the government announced at least 80 policies, which would end up costing at least £150 billion. Um, We want to highlight the speed and the scale, because I think this really demonstrates the performance of civil servants during this period, how hard they worked, how quickly they acted, how intelligently they acted to get so much support out and provide so much certainty to the country in a very short space of time. Um, It's particularly impressive that they got schemes like furlough out of the door within weeks given that the department along with most of the rest of government had done very little preparation for a pandemic of this type so they had to turn pre-existing systems and data into large economic support delivery systems so we saw furlough and self-employment support delivered through the tax system for example Relying on existing systems did mean that ministers had to face some pretty uh, stark trade-offs between how much support could be delivered, the the speed at which it could be delivered, and how much fraud risk they were willing to accept. In some situations, they did accept pretty high levels of fraud risk, such as on bounce-back loans, but this was a conscious decision, and many of our interviewees felt that it was the right decision. Um, this really impressive policy response was helped by very good collaboration with external stakeholders, business groups, trade unions, external experts and those delivering policies, most importantly. So really close involvement with HMRC, British Business Bank, Bank of England and private banks involved right from the first day of sort of policy design, which really helped to improve its effectiveness and speed. Now, on phase two which is less about economic policy, because the foundations for that had already been laid in the first phase, Um, but rather the context here is greater discussion of trade-offs, both inside and outside government, both inevitable and essential, given the adverse impacts of lockdown, and also more information in the public domain about the impacts of the pandemic and restrictions. So the key question we wanted to examine is how the Treasury came together with other parts of government to produce a balanced and consistent pandemic policy that could take account of all of the various different impacts. Ultimately, we found that this didn't really happen, and there was instead a tug of war in the centre of government. That's a problem because departments, including the Treasury, took quite a tactical approach to sharing analysis So um, only when it supported the department's policy decision rather than open sharing and synthesis of analysis to then support the process of arriving at a policy position. Um, This is problematic because of the incredibly complex nature of the pandemic. It was not a simple trade off. It was not a choice between health or the economy. There were points at which certain actions would benefit both. But you couldn't really get to that unless you were doing the proper work to combine all the different uh, uh, considerations at the centre of government. Now, to understand the Treasury's role in this, we look at three uh, sort of broad roles it fulfilled during that period. One was monitoring what would happen in the economy, so outcomes such as GDP, employment, that sort of thing found it worked really effectively with other parts of government to build up an understanding of what was happening in the economy, where to direct support, who was suffering the most, Uh, quite close working with Bayes and Cabinet Office to update the Prime Minister and Cabinet on a regular basis on what was going on. The second thing we talk about is uh, a role for the Treasury in providing a view on where the economy would go, so the OBR Office for Budget Responsibility is, of course, the government's forecaster. But things were changing so quickly during the pandemic that its forecasts were often out of date. We argued that there was a role for the Treasury in providing more sort of thought leadership across government, in um, providing a view on where the economy would go, so that everyone was working from a common set of assumptions. Communication from the government was consistent. Policy development was consistent. The Treasury did these for internal purposes, but didn't share their scenarios across Whitehall. It felt as though it wasn't their role. This meant that departments uh, set up back channels for economic analysis and ultimately were working from different sets of assumptions and communication was inconsistent. Third, and I think most importantly, is unpicking the causal effect of restrictions. So just looking at economic outcomes doesn't help you to understand the impact of the pandemic or the impact of restrictions. That's because you don't know whether the outcomes you're seeing are due to the pure effect of lockdowns or the natural behavioral response of people in the face of a virus, which is to not go out, to not do economic activity. So there was a role at a macro level for building an analytical underpinning of the relationship between economic and public health, the economics of pandemics, if you like, uh, to understand what the right policy response is at various points in the progression of, of, of the crisis. And then at a micro level, there was a need to build up evidence of the sort of causal economic impact of each individual intervention to understand which was least cost. Both well, we don't know a great deal about what the Treasury was doing internally, but the main criticism from our research uh, for this project, which came out very strongly in interviews, was that the Treasury shared very little of it across Whitehall. People felt as though it didn't have this macro level analytical underpinning of its view of lockdowns, which was, or not or view of restrictions, which was always negative, and it wasn't often forthcoming with evidence on the economic impacts of specific interventions. These are very hard things to do analytically. That should not be underestimated, and there is a lot of uncertainty in this sort of work. But it was possible, and particularly if external academics and researchers had been commissioned and uh, asked to input economic evidence in a more formal way, like scientists were through SAGE. Uh, We argue that this sort of lack of analysis on the economics of pandemics flowing into central decision-making led to suboptimal Uh, policy during the pandemic so at some point you had economic considerations driving delays to restrictions even though at that point the restrictions may have been better for the economy and public health because they would have prevented stricter longer restrictions from coming in at a later point at other points consideration of economic and other social aspects were probably not weighed as heavily as they should be so we're sort of going, going from one extreme to the other The other symptom in terms of policy is inconsistency across departments. So Eat Out to Help Out is the classic example where you had an economic policy acting against health objectives. Now, phase three, we found that things improved quite a lot. Um, So interviewees said that government was better able to come together to consider all of these trade-offs, and this ultimately resulted in a more considered policy. Uh, They point to the Spring 2021 roadmap as a good example of this. Two reasons for that. One is the vaccine aligned, aligned everyone's incentives a bit more, Um, So people disagreed less about what the the policy prescription was. But we also find that a stronger unit in Cabinet Office to actually bring everyone together and agree on a common set of evidence and come to a consensus on that, even if they still disagreed about policy, led to much better decision-making. It avoided the situation in 2020 where people would dispute the evidence because it contradicted their policy position. So, what does all this mean for what needs to change? I'm only going to skim through these very briefly, and you can find them in full in our report. But our recommendations revolve around enhancing the use of analysis within the Treasury, thinking about how it can, the centre of government can uh, collaborate more effectively... Um, in a crisis, but also on day to day domestic policy issues, not just lessons for the Treasury here, very importantly, also for the Cabinet Office and number 10, um, resilience and preparedness, particularly for risks that are not economic or fiscal in nature, um, and the ministerial civil service relationship, in particular, how it affects the incentives that civil servants producing analysis and advice face. Um, I'll leave it.
1: Thank you very much, Ollie. Um, Charles Roxburgh, I'd like to come to you first for your reactions. What are the main
2: reactions you have to those findings? Well, thank you very much indeed, uh, Gemma and Ollie, and thank you for your report. I think it's very important to evaluate the Treasury's contribution during um, the pandemic, and that's why I'm delighted to join this panel. And I think in evaluating it, it's important to consider our performance and test us against the really important issues, the things that the British public should hold us to account for. Here we were facing the biggest economic threat in 300 years with a very credible prospect of mass unemployment, which would be both an economic and a social catastrophe, large-scale business failures and economic hardship for millions of people. Those are the things I think we should be tested against, whether we've prevented. And I think on that, the evidence in your report makes clear that the Treasury, I think, did an outstanding job. And the civil servants there and the ministerial team led by Rishi Sunak I think, should be very proud of their work. Um, We did protect millions of jobs, save hundreds of thousands of small businesses from failing, um, gave financial support to the most vulnerable in society. We also protected the cultural sector, which isn't mentioned in your report. Not a single cultural institution failed during COVID because of the support the Treasury provided. So on that, that's a record of impact against the really big, important issues that we should be judged on. I think the Treasury can be very proud of its record. Did we get everything right? No, of course not. We did not get everything right. Some interventions didn't work perfectly when they were launched. Some interventions had gaps in their coverage. Uh, We didn't always have the data that we needed. And some of the interventions were, no doubt, a bit late in being introduced, even though, as says, they were introduced at speed. Uh, We didn't have everything on the shelf ready to go. So there are absolutely lessons to be learned. Um, and the good news is I know the Treasury started learning those lessons uh, during this pandemic. We, in, Our response improved. Our, I think the Capital Office also learned lessons, and their response improved too. And I'm happy to get into the detail when we get into the further discussion as to um, whether collaboration was as good as it could have been. Um, I remember clearly sharing sharing a lot of cross-Whitehall meetings, uh, sharing our economic data, which aren't mentioned in your reports. I'm happy to go into those. But my overall memory of working across Whitehall during this time was one of great openness, great collaboration. We set up a lot of uh, working groups with other departments and with other parts of the um, uh, public sector and private sector. So I don't fully recognise this picture of a secretive closed treasury. My experience for the two years of the pandemic, working day in, day out on it, was of extraordinarily good collaboration and openness across Whitehall. But overall, I think... um, Uh, It's an important debate to have, and I'm looking forward to the discussion.
1: Thank you very much. Tracy, I'll come to you next.
4: Well, well, that's a good moment, I think, because looking at this from the outside, um, Sense About Science works with the public, and I've worked with the public for over 20 years looking at policy evidence and and access and understanding of, of policy evidence. And we all knew uh, that there was quite some interest, there's quite a public interest in the standard of evidence used in policy. But the, the pandemic provided us with the first opportunity to investigate that at scale because the whole population in some way or other was trying to find out information about why decisions were being made and how to deal with decisions that appeared to conflict um, and, and, and you know how new information was being used by government. So we did a big Natsen survey at the end of it all, but we also interviewed all the sectors and a lot of experts from outside of government. And the kind of key things that... Um, That came across where, as you can imagine, there was a, a real lack of transparency for the kind of decisions that people have to make in society. They aren't just sort of individuals consuming stuff that's put out. They want to know what's going to happen if they make certain decisions for their customers, for their people they employ, for their families, for the care home they run. Uh, for their patients you know so they were looking for what is the trade-off that's going on here is government the big one is is government aware of how these issues are affecting my sector um so where do I play in information and I think uh, by and large there was a lot of frustration uh, across everyone from sort of car showrooms to to um you know um, foster care agencies and others that they they didn't understand that. So I think what Charles is looking at is, you know, did the Treasury give out cash in a strategic and, and tactical way? Um, and, and how was that managed? And that's, that's a great triumph for the Treasury. The question of how trade-offs were being made and discussed, the fact that the quality of life years were jettisoned, but no one knew what was in their place, for example. Um, and so we are all kind of, it's a bit of a mystery as to how um, how things were to be optimised, different outcomes, kids' education versus um, the uh, prolonged life of of eighty five year olds, and this kind of thing. So, so I think in that sense, I, I I feel that there was nothing coming out of the Treasury that we could answer that public quest for information with. Um, particularly, it wasn't very useful. I agree very much with your report that um, that there was a bit of a sea change around the uh, beginning of uh, of twenty twenty one, end of twenty twenty. Um, But there was this mismatch of expectations. But I did want to throw something else in the mix. I I recognise a lot of the criticisms that you've made in your report, or a lot of the kind of critical points of reflection about better joined up thinking. However, I do feel that looking at it from the perspective of different stakeholder groups, you know, teachers and others who were in touch with us, that the Treasury um, was the most in touch with the need to keep other factors in the mix. You know, that, that it was a rather novel thing to do to suddenly um, uh, erect this goal of, of transmission reduction as the only thing that all models should drive at. And there, there was, a, I think, a genuine attempt in the Treasury to preserve things like the social mobility that working-class kids have when they leave school at 16. And, you know, there was awareness of, of the impact of those things. The problem was it became kind of subversive to be thinking like that. And I think the Treasury sulked a bit about that um, and pulled back from actually leading that discussion or felt maybe just felt very vulnerable that the press would play that badly or whatever but there was a feeling from, from I think from the outside that the kind of leadership on having the discussions about trade-offs that you might have expected from the Treasury wasn't there even if the cash uh, was, was bringing up the rear.
1: Fantastic. Thank you. Charlie. Uh,
5: okay. Uh, reflections on three dimensions. So starting with Uh, The the dimension where I think the Treasury really did well, uh, and which has already been uh, alluded to, was the policy response. Um, If you go back to the uh, start of the pandemic, basically what we were concerned about was that it would result in (coughs) substantial permanent damage to the supply capacity of the economy, Mm -hmm. uh, as well as obviously hardship to individual households uh, and businesses. Um, and the, although it was very expensive, what the Treasury uh, put in place, uh, it did what it was supposed to. Uh, so that the, the damage, the supply capacity, insofar so far as it has been, was entirely on the labour supply dimension, with the, particularly the early retirements. And it's difficult to see how the Treasury could have done anything about that. But they destroyed, they avoided unnecessary destruction of um, business capacity. Um, I I, I thought a lot of the individual policy measures, uh, you know, cleverly exploited existing structures. So the furlough scheme is the the very good example, uh, put into place very quickly. Uh, And I do want to defend uh, the Treasury on the bounce-back loan scheme in particular, which is... Uh, There's been some criticism of the potentially high levels of fraud. Um, It's easy to point to those in hindsight. Uh, But the question is, could you have designed a scheme which was fit for purpose, um, uh, which didn't have that problem? And the key thing was that before the bounce-back loan scheme was introduced... Uh, there just wasn't any way to deal with the volume of potential loan applications from smaller businesses. So you had to have something uh, that uh, took the banks out of close scrutiny, if you like. Um, So I think it's very difficult uh, to see a scheme that would have delivered on its objectives with markedly lower uh, fraud. So there the... Uh, I think, where the Treasury showed its real strength. I mean, the, the Treasury is a good department when it comes to crises, possibly because it get, gets lots of practice. Um, but over the years, I've seen, uh, seen the, the Treasury do very well in crisis situations. Um, uh, another area I think they did particularly well was on the monitoring mm-hmm. of the consequences of the pandemic. Um, I mean, in general, the exploitation of real-time data, things like the Google Mobility Indices, payments data, all sorts of unconventional uh, data series became necessary to track how the economy was evolving and not wait for the normal official statistics. Um, so I was saying, actually, the Office for National Statistics also played a uh, a bit of a blinder here. Uh, so the rapid introduction of the BICs. Uh, so it was, I think, the uh, business interruption from COVID survey. <laughs> now is business insights and conditions survey. Um, but anyway, the fortnightly uh, survey uh, was an important um, ingredient. And, of course, the random testing uh, uh, for infections, which was very important. <laughs> in uh, getting a handle on actually how widespread the disease was. Um, so there are a couple of good things. Um, where I think the Treasury performance, at least from the outside, looks less strong uh, is basically on the analytic uh, dimension. Because uh, I think the Treasury uh, is well-placed to think about trade-offs. That's what economists do, after all. Um, But certainly from the outside, uh, it looked like uh, the Treasury was playing the role of the um, defender of the importance of taking account of economic and other um, uh, interests as against the health interests. And that adversarial uh, setting, I'm not sure, was helpful, whereas ideally what one wants to be thinking of... What's an efficient design of a set of policies so that you achieve the desired health ends uh, with minimum disruption to the economy, education, all these other things, which you can think of as attaching prices to individual policy interventions. Um, so these are not necessarily economic interventions, they're uh, pharmaceutical mm-hmm. uh, interventions and so forth. Uh, and then basically you have an R budget uh, which you can spend that's sort of consistent with keeping the pandemic under control, but achieves that objective uh, in the uh, lowest cost way. Um, and I think the Treasury could have certainly contributed to the wisdom of the discussion across Whitehall, if it was basically trying to couch things uh, in that framework, whereas it did appear to be in a sort of much more adversarial role with the, uh, the health side of things. Uh, and I think that, that uh, there's a question about how much of that was deliberate choice, how much of it was accidental, how much of it was lack of expertise. Uh, in the treasury but I think that is an area when thinking for the future uh, that you would want to increase the treasury's capability and indeed uh, Whitehall's capability uh, for dealing with these sorts of events in the future
1: Mm. and just to clarify that as Ollie said um, our report we could only go so far in understanding what was actually being done within the Treasury. So, just to clarify, given that you were in the OBR at that point, is, did you also not see any of that sort of analysis?
5: Um, in, in, indeed, and I have to say my perception was often that the Treasury was sort of leaning on our uh, analysis. Um, uh, now, you know, the, the OBR is a small operation and we didn't have a lot of people... Uh, working on so a lot of it was um, sort of pretty rudimentary uh, in terms of developing models of the impact of restrictions and things like that, and we obviously developed those over time. Mm. Uh, but I certainly had the impression that actually the Treasury were then using them for their for constructing their own scenarios, <laughs> which was, was fine. Mm. But I didn't see a lot of original uh, analysis coming out of the. Uh, the Treasury, and in particular this question about designing packets of intervention, mm-hmm. uh, sets of policy <laughs> interventions which achieved objectives in the least cost way. That's the sort of thing I would have expected uh, the Treasury to be able to uh, to lead on. Right.
2: Thank
1: you, Roshanara. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Apologies um, for the delay. Yeah, well, so with you... apologies that you haven't heard everyone else's comments. Um, just wanted to get your sort of reflections on this question um, and our report to the extent that you've seen those. Yeah
0: I've seen I've seen an excellent summary of your report and (laughs) congratulations I think it's really important for us to reflect uh, on what went well what didn't and I I want to start off by uh, I know Charles is on online I want to start off by uh, recognising the enormously challenging circumstances in which officials across Whitehall had to work uh, and the incredible uncertainty uh, that we all face. Uh, and it's in that context that we've got to recognise that, of course, these decisions are made. So what I'm about to say, I hope it is it not taken as criticism of individuals, officials, public servants across our public services, and, of course, people in the private sector who made a huge contribution, and, and those in, in the OBR and Bank of England, all those institutions that I had the uh, opportunity to, of course, meet virtually, uh, as a member of the Treasury (coughs) Select Committee. Uh, And I think what I want to do is just reflect on a few um, points. The first is that we entered into the pandemic uh, less prepared than we should have done. Uh, And that's to do with health spending. That's to do with reductions, hundreds of millions of pounds of cuts in primary care. So we went into into the pandemic less resilient than we could have been. And that was a political choice. Uh, And and frankly, we have to recognize that uh, and it's not actually a party political point. I would say the same if my party made cuts into primary primary care and health preparedness, because those are the realities of what we've got to learn from. So that's the first thing. And even the current chancellor, then chair of the Health Select Committee, recognized that. Uh, That's the first thing. That would have life would have been a lot easier for the institutions than having to respond to the pandemic the second second area that I think that uh, we should of course recognize is that the UK thanks to Our brilliant universities uh, and institutions were uh, remarkable in the way they worked to get a vaccine uh, trialled and and ready. Uh, And that's something that, of course, we should absolutely recognise and be proud of. And the related point around the way in which uh, the National Health Service, working with other sectors, worked to make sure that the vaccine rollout happened... Uh, and that involved considerable work across government department with communities. And I know how much of a difference it made the, with the partnership working with local agencies, local authorities and so on. Uh, so this is no, not a treasury point, but it is, of course, related. Because when you're thinking about the, the crisis that we faced, unless you think collectively, think about how institutions work together um, uh, in a collaborative, coherent way then you're not going to be able to address the, 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 kind of the, the scale of the challenge that we face. Now, turning to the Treasury, the areas where I think that, um, that, that we all recognise uh, that the Treasury did a really good job is the furlough scheme. It took some time to persuade the government. Uh, and the, the background of this is that, of course, in the early days, there just seemed this constant need to <laughs> explain, persuade, campaign. That was our experience as MPs. Uh, nothing came easily, by the way. Uh, it, it may have looked like it, it, was, it all made sense, but, but it didn't. And the fellow scheme, if you look at the contribution of people like um, uh, the head of the Trade Union Council, she, she played a really important role as a trade union leader and it's a, it's a real contrast to what the government's doing at the moment in terms of the way they're working or not working with trade unions and, and other institutions to, to come to settlements. But that, that collaborative, almost tripartite way of working that we hadn't seen for a long time, that's very common in countries like Germany and so on, was really important in developing the furlough scheme, recognising the need for a, for a, for a response. Um, and then, of course, the other programs that were initiated with the support of institutions, whether it's the Bank of England and, and, and so on, uh, was vital. So I commend the Treasury and the work they did in, in, that, in that arena. I think there was, your report highlights it well. There was, and, and, and that became more and more apparent Um, Once we got past the first wave, uh, there was a divergence, big divergence between the Treasury and uh, the health department and the experts. And this business of government constantly going and ministers and the prime minister, then prime minister going up saying we're following the science. Well, frankly, that's just BS. That's not what happened. Uh, We knew that wasn't happening. And the subsequent inquiries have pointed that out. If they had done that, followed the science, and there was a coherent response, then I'm sure that, uh, that we wouldn't have had the, 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 the scale of the second wave that we had. And you mentioned in your report, the Out to help out scheme. Uh, we, we, can, we highlighted the dangers. In constituencies like mine, the first wave was awful, incredibly bad. Uh, the, highest, uh, the second highest, I think, no, sorry, fourth highest age standardized death rate in the country. So we knew that unleashing a program like Eat Out, Help Out was literally going to kill people. And we told the government, we, we raised these issues, and it wasn't listened to. And my reflection in terms of the Treasury uh, and so the civil service is I feel that over the recent years, the civil service has been weakened. Uh, by subsequent, um, we've had so many different uh, prime ministers and uh, different governments, but over the last few years, the civil service has lost its confidence. And during the pandemic... It didn't have, and, and frankly, I think the Treasury officials, and I'd be interested in Charles's reflections on this, did not have the confidence to say to the then-Chancellor and the current Prime Minister, this will be a disaster. This is literally going to kill people. You cannot do this. Because the reality is it did, and the evidence by Warwick University pointed this out, uh, and others have pointed this out. We saw this, well, We saw this on the ground because the second wave in constituencies like mine because of a political choice that the Chancellor, now Prime Minister, made was made the first wave look pretty, pretty um, uh, tame. And, you know, a lot of people died in the first wave. The scale and the speed at which the second wave spread, uh, and it's partly to do with the variant and the type of variant, of course. But then that was compounded by the decision to let people... Uh, uh, eat out, uh, so-called eat out to help out, eat out to spread the virus is what happened in constituencies like mine, what has happened in London in highly populated er areas with high levels of inequality. So I would say that's an area where we must learn the lessons and we must empower government officials to be able to speak truth to power and not be pushed around Uh, by uh, decisions that are not evidence-based, and that's a really important arena, where the evidence and the scientists were pointing out very clearly what was going to happen and what the risks were. The second thing I think we need to learn, uh, uh, two other areas actually. One is about uh, the decision, uh, we as a party and other parties, of course, quite rightly, had to support the emergency legislation. There was no question that we could object to that. But that wasn't permission for government ministers to abuse power and waste public money through uh, bad allocations of funding, which led to catastrophic levels of fraud, billions of fraud. uh, And people will know those numbers. Uh, I'm sure I'm in a room full of experts who'll know billions of frauds in, in, in a range of areas. Uh, that should have been should have been of course you have to recognize an element of waste will happen in an emergency but even when you account for that things could have done been done to prevent that that's the first thing the second thing is there was abuse of power in the vip lanes of contracts frankly that was corruption in any other society (coughs) that would be named corruption Increasingly it is, and we've got, to, we've got to point the elephant in the room instead of using euphemisms uh, that had been done for some time. That's billion, hundreds of millions of pounds. And I was among the first of MPs to find to point this out in 2020, September 2020, when millions of pounds of, of contracts were given out through PPE contracts to companies that, frankly, you know, did not have expertise and had close links to the Conservative Party. That is a disgrace. Our civil service, our government, historically, has had a reputation of being relatively clean, relatively free from corruption. But the emergency legislation, let's face it, was being abused by certain people to do favours for uh, those connected to the Conservative Party uh, and those who are connected directly to individuals, as has been pointed out. The final, final thing I would say is, is really about making sure that... There's better systems for for coordination of policy and making sure that the Treasury uh, and frankly, emergencies should not be used as an excuse for not having oversight of what other governments do. And often we had senior people, senior ministers, senior officials coming to our committee telling us that because of the pandemic, Certain decisions had to be made. We all recognize that. But when the public, when the British people now are looking at report after report pointing out billions of pounds have gone to waste while they can't afford to put food on the table in constituencies like mine, money that could have been uh, not wasted and used to pay people who, are de- who face pay cuts and wage over the <coughs> over the last decade. And when people can't afford to eat, I have the highest child poverty rate in the country uh, and with the pandemic, things have got worse. When that happens, we have to all ask ourselves why it is that it was allowed. Uh, why weren't ministers held to account? Uh, why weren't officials speaking out? Uh, and maybe they were. And, the, of course, the difficulty is officials can't go public. So, so I very much feel for them. But we've got to learn the lessons of how we ensure that government departments and officials in Whitehall and the other relevant departments can ensure that these abuses don't happen because the, the failure to do that has cost billions of pounds uh, to the taxpayer. And we're going to be paying for, the, for this for uh, many years to come. I'll stop there. Yep. I'm sorry if uh, this is not the sort of contribution that you're used to, but um, I'm in, you know, I just feel that we've got to just face up to uh, what has happened in, in, during the pandemic and afterwards, both good and bad.
1: No, thank you very much. And that's why we wanted a broad set of panellists here to get all perspectives on, on this question. Um, I wanted to pick up first on the point that all of Tracy, Charlie and Rishanara um, picked up on about what understanding and how government was thinking about the trade-offs between potential different objectives through the pandemic, how those conversations were happening, and the contribution that the Treasury made, particularly as you you said, Charlie, given... The, the framework that economics can help you bring to answering that question. Um, I want to come to you first, Charles. Um, if you'd be happy to give us a, a bit more of an explanation of what what we may not have seen from the outside, how, in your experience, were these conversations being had? How were departments coming together to think about these different outcomes and trade-offs?
2: Thank you. Well, um, maybe I can talk about some of the things that we did do and then pick up uh, the areas Olly said that we could have done differently. Um, uh, First of all, as I said in my opening comments, it was a very open and collaborative spirit across all of Whitehall at the time. And we worked very well with the OBR and the bank and public sector entities as well. Um, I I chaired a meeting uh, on a monthly basis to share our latest economic perspective on what was happening in the economy. That was open to all permsecs and senior officials. I did that regularly through this period. Claire Lombardelli presented every week to the Prime Minister and senior officials in Number 10 to set out our latest thinking and to share our perspectives there. Uh, We seconded people from the Treasury to the Cabinet Office to help strengthen their ability to integrate and uh, strengthen their analytical capabilities at the centre of government. Um, uh, We haven't talked much about sectoral analysis because what's happening in the economy overall is of, of big interest. But what was striking about this pandemic was how different the impact was on different sectors. So we set up sector-focused groups, which I chaired uh, with, for instance, the Department for Transport to look at what was happening in aviation and in airports and with uh, bays to discuss what was happening in the big industrial sectors. And those groups um, uh, commissioned new research, new analysis from outside experts. We presented that to the Chancellor. We shared all the information on a completely open book. We couldn't share it widely because it was extremely price-sensitive information getting into what was happening to individual companies. With some companies, we had their information as well. We really worked very closely with companies facing these challenges. Uh, and that was necessarily kept on a very tight list, but it was completely open within the relevant parts of Whitehall that needed to see the information. Uh, and that led to some important uh, um, interventions at the sectoral level um, for some companies. So uh, my memory of those that whole pandemic period was of one of openness and collaborative working across Whitehall. Now, to pick up Ollie's two points that we uh, should have done more economic forecasting, um, uh, well, as you know, we have two official sector forecasters, the OBR and the Bank of England, and they produce forecast throughout this period, the Treasury does produce every month and publishes a synthesis of all the private sector economic forecasts. So there were a lot of economic forecasts out there and the Treasury does not have the capability to produce published economic forecasts. As uh, Charlie knows well, that's a huge amount of work to put all the evidence and the analysis behind a published forecast. And we have official forecasters who do that extraordinarily well and professionally, and we're not set up to do that. So I don't think another forecast from the Treasury would have been helpful, given all the other economic forecasts that we were working with and that were publicly available. On um, the trade-offs analysis, I'm I'm sure that um, as that science develops and it was developing as this um, pandemic unfurled, unfurled, there's more that we could learn. And this is a useful and helpful debate. Uh, We did do some of that work. That was led by Claire Lombardelli and our economics team, Um, but as Claire said in her recent speech last year, um, it was actually of limited practical value in policy development because very small changes in assumptions lead to very wide outcomes, so it wasn't that helpful. Um, what I remember more was there was a lot of debate um, uh, about this trade-off, um, and ultimately those decisions need to be taken at the heart of government by the Prime Minister uh the, the Chancellor was very open to those debates. If I may um, just pick up Rishnara's point about the, uh, whether Treasury officials felt empowered to speak truth to power. I, I'm now not in the Treasury, so I can say exactly what I like and what I think um, without fear or favour. And I can say completely honestly that in my nearly 10 years at the Treasury, I served four Chancellors and they were always open to challenge and contrary points of view And they never put pressure on me or any of my teams to shade what we thought or the analysis that we did. Now, naturally, chancellors don't always agree with Treasury officials and they can make their decisions. And when they make their decisions based on our advice, um, they um, will say yes or no to whatever we advise. And then our job as officials is to go out and implement and sometimes defend to the Treasury Committee those policies. Uh, But in all my time in the Treasury, I never felt a chance to... Wanted to close down debate. In fact, all four chancellors I served were really excellent at listening to challenge and welcoming that debate.
1: Thank you very much, Rishna. Can I come to you with the, sort of on the same topic? I mean, this, mm-hmm. in a sense, the pandemic threw up yep. some unusual types of policy decisions that were having yep. to be made, and sometimes those were put to. MPs to vote on whether lockdown should happen, that sort of thing. Yeah. Can you how did it affect your role as, as an MP and on the Treasury yeah. Select Committee, the extent to which analysis was or was not made available and your understanding of the basis on which government was suggesting proposals?
0: Well, in, in, I think what I would say is that the first thing was, of course, Parliament. when Parliament shut down, the two committees that were allowed to, to res- remain was the Treasury Committee and the Health Select Committee. So we were fortunate, those of us on those committees, to be able to ask the Chancellor, then-Chancellor, now Prime Minister, questions, um, and also other ministers. So that was really helpful, as, as well as, of course, uh, Charlie and others and, and the Bank of England. That was helpful because... Uh, it meant that we had more um, more of a say and uh, and so on to expose issues that we were concerned about, and, and we did right the way through, uh, including you know I raised issues about supply chain disruptions. We talked quite a lot about sectoral issues like hospitality, um, and also the one area the one area I didn't mention uh, is the excluded. There were three nearly four million self-employed people. Uh, and there was a massive issue with those people and they didn't get the support uh, that they needed. Uh, I still come across people who were, you know, were indebted because they got no help from the government because if they were freelancers and so on or micro businesses, um, so we were able to expose a number of issues. We didn't win all the battles, uh, for excluded being among them. Um, but but there are others where we did feel that uh, there were there was a more iterative approach, and 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 you could say, well, what about this? What about this? What about this? Um, uh, you know, uh, I remember before lockdown, the chancellor came uh, and he had you know he had an hour. Uh, and we were putting on the sort of it was almost like here is another thing and here's another thing you need to do, and it was more like that at that point. Uh, the, the second thing I'd say is around um, uh, uh, around the lockdown uh, sort of the, the, the kind of absolute palpable fear in communities up and down the country where they could see dead bodies piling up in Italy and other places some weeks before Uh, before uh, things got bad in the UK. And uh, the just horrific levels of frustration of having no decision made by our government. Uh, And so we had to kind of, we had to get into campaigning mode of trying to persuade ministers, trying to persuade the government that we ought to get into lockdown. Um, And that was very frustrating. So so I, I think as MPs, and I know lots of colleagues across parties had to do this, as MPs, what we had to do is take things, matters into our own hands, actually, which was, you know, and I, that was my experience. I had to, so I started ringing up um, local organisations, local faith buildings that congregate large numbers, community centres, wedding venues. I mean, I, I, I'm i not making myself very popular at the time, ringing people up, trying to get them to cancel weddings. I mean, literally having to do things like that because the government wasn't going, you know, announcing lockdowns. And I, we knew those of us in very large, diverse communities, lots of faith institutions, community gatherings, that, um, you know, a thousand people congregating uh, is a lot of spread. Uh, So two, three weeks before lockdown, we were doing that in our constituencies, encouraging, working with local authorities to do that. And you sort of really felt like the government wasn't, you know, You know, the the government wasn't really with you at that point. Once we got into lockdown, um, this the system of accountability and parliamentary scrutiny all took some time to get into place. Um, The the things that worked well was, you know, ministers, um, which took a bit of time. Some ministers were better than others. I'd say the 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 vaccine minister was among the best in terms of coordination and working with colleagues across parties. Um, But there were others that were it was more complicated. So. The the, the the way in which Parliament had to kind of adjust and adapt was a challenge, uh, and there was very limited scope for holding the government to account in the first era, unless you happen to be on the committees, you know, that, that I mentioned, my committee and, and health committee and so on. Um, so so it was, it was a really challenging time. And, of course, if you're, if you're in that um, sort of position between institutions, the other thing that came up a lot was... Um, and of course, I'm not. This is not a criticism of any individual in, institution. It was just a fact that the the national decisions and how it translated in terms of health authorities and health the health sector and what they were trying to do uh, often it took it, it did it needed the intermediaries like MPs and others to try and sort of bridge those gaps. Um, and, and there were some notable wins in terms of persuading the government. But again, as I say, it took a lot of work that shouldn't, frankly, it shouldn't have taken so much persuasion and convincing, but it was often like that. Um, There were things like uh, differential impacts on groups. It took quite a lot of work to persuade government ministers that they need to think about risk factors, health inequalities and race. Um, It took some time. uh, And as a consequence, I would say that some groups, um, uh, the disproportionality uh, was you know was exacerbated because of the failure to to recognise that 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 some groups were going to be hit much harder across the board, um, both in economic terms as well as in terms of the health effects. G-
4: right. Gemma, I, I might I yeah. pick up on just that theme? Because yeah. I think we've been talking about what what analysis is done inside government and what is shared, which is not enough of mm. it. Um, but there's also what was also demanded was uh, a lot of monitoring and picking up of information about society that yep. that hadn't been required before mm. and bringing different factors together. So while I got I got the um, the feel from what Charlie was saying and what Charles said, you know that, yeah, we're not going to arrive at the end of this and say we're, we need an Uber model of society that you put the policy suggestion in and the answer mm. comes out the other side. You know, and there have been those sorts of suggestions, and they're silly. But I do think there are proper discussions to be had now about things like, for example, there is a sweet spot when you close the schools where you reduce transmission but you have the least amount of damage to a child's education. We don't know what that looked like as a model... Yep. For example, we know that there are key intervention points where you really mess around with a kid's yep. chances and leaving yep. at school at 16. Yep. We don't know how that would have looked if you would not put that into the model with the transmission dynamics because it didn't happen yep. Yep. and no one actually had the opportunity to suggest it. We had epidemiologists working with SAGE who wanted to do that kind of analysis, but it, they were looking, looking, looking for it from the Cabinet yep. Office or the Treasury. Nothing. No, no command came. Um, And and I think there are places like that where... And, and, Mm. and, you know, the point about, obviously, the role of multiple deprivations and Mm. things like that that suddenly start to make policy look quite different And when you've got multiple interventions that are hitting people Mm. from different ways. And who's putting that together to look at the combined effect Mm. of those things over what period of time? There is stuff there. So, sadly, we kind of arrive at this place where we say, hey, there's all this opportunity for more joined-upness, right? But it would be really nice to be able to say... What works yep. a little yep. bit more in this and what would be great now would be to see some leadership on that. Yes. Can I can
0: I just come back on that? I think I think one of the things I would say is that uh, the, the the most important lesson that national government needs to learn, it uh, doesn't matter which, which party and so on, is you've got to you've got to make sure Whitehall listens to local agencies. Yeah because actually the local authorities often were, you know, they were organising responses that were so very rapid... And, and of course, that, that's the other bit we didn't talk about, which is we entered into the pan- pandemic with local authorities very substantially weakened. There were local authority leads who were terrified of spending money, because they were, you know, they used to. Well, how are we going to make up for it? Is the government going <laughs> to pay us? So, we, so that that part is absolutely critical. And on education, you mentioned education and the data. There's a lot of data. We were, and MPs were sharing it. We were telling the government health inequalities in boroughs like mine concentrated housing, that is going to make it much, it's going to spread faster. We're going to have higher intergenerational families. We're going to have much higher death rates. And it fell on death, de- death ears in the first few weeks. Uh, so, so awareness of data that already exists, listening to the evidence, listening to people who actually know what's going on on the ground is something that took much longer than it needed to and cost lives. And the school point you make, um, I, I'll just give you one anecdote. It was absolutely exhausting, persuading ministers to give laptops to kids in my constituency. And they even politicized laptop allocation, I'm afraid, where it went to Tory areas before areas that needed. I had kids with one mobile phone doing Zoom calls, four or five kids in a family sitting in a tiny living room because of overcrowding when the government could have. They were wasting billions. They couldn't be bothered to allocate laptops. That's just one example of how the education part, actually, it wasn't, you didn't need research and evidence. It was, they were being told. It was very clear what was needed in those areas. We had the evidence. And that, that's where things should not have been gone wrong. And it was purely political.
1: Thank you so, very much. There are an awful lot of COVID-related issues, which yep. we certainly weren't able to cover in, in this report. I mean, on the data point, I think as um, Charlie and Charles and Ollie did all mention. In a sense, that was one of the successes of the pandemic, one of the successes of Treasury, was find, finding novel bits of data to mm. use to understand what was going on mm. quickly, but mm. perhaps didn't happen um, as quickly as was needed. I do want to make sure I give a chance to uh, all of you to ask um, some questions. Um, so if you're in the room, um, please put your hand up. If you're in the adjoining room, please pop your head around the door, um, and I will come to questions online as well. I will take a block of questions, um, Go to Kitty at the back, um, then the gentleman here, and then I'll go to
0: Paul. Take those three. Uh, Hi, thanks very much for calling me first. Uh, Kitty Usher, former Treasury Minister a long time ago and now Chief Economist at the Institute of Directors. I've got two very quick related questions. Uh, First, I think, must probably be to Charles, and thank you so much for joining us, uh, Charles, which is, with hindsight, what do you think the Treasury should have done differently And then on a specific point, Charlie, I was really um, taken by uh, your description of how well furlough had worked to prevent scarring, but obviously we did have the specific scarring of of older workers uh, uh, leaving the labour force. So I just wonder, is there any way that um, perhaps furlough could have been designed differently or some kind of policy intervention with, with hindsight that would have perhaps kept that cohort more active and less likely to have left the labour market?
6: Uh, Josh Arnold Forster, I uh, used to be a spag. Um, I mean, a couple of points, well, one, one, well, two questions really. In terms of speaking truth to power, I think it's interesting that Charles feels that's fine, given that we've lost five PUSs, including Tom Scholar, in the last three years, I think. But the question I've got really is on, um, is on at what point did the Treasury look at debt management? Because we are now in a situation where uh, the, the Bank of England predictably is going for quantitative tightening. You must have presumably discussed this with the Bank of England. This means that the sorts of things that Roshana was talking about, about the damaging effects of this on primary health care, on uh, local government financing, et cetera, et cetera. So did at any point you look at re- reconfiguring how government debt was managed, say lengthening the length of bonds? Six and then Paul.
5: Uh, i'm a journalist Um, obviously i think we could acknowledge that the treasury did a very good job at shipping out lots of money helped by a compliant bank of england but on the broader question about mitigating the economic damage of the pandemic i put it to you as a, a I'd argue that the Treasury was on the wrong side of the argument because it was constantly resisting early interventions that would have reduced and and slowed the spread of the epidemic, which simply meant that then much more onerous and long-lasting restrictions had to be put in place. And that helps to explain why Britain's economic performance in the pandemic was so poor compared with other countries in Europe.
1: Thank you. I will um, throw in a couple of questions. Well, one question probably from uh, online as well. And I think given the time, we will have to have one round of responses. Um, so when I come to you, please do also feel free to add any final reflections you have, or if there's anything in particular you would hope that the Treasury takes away from this event, um, please throw it in at the same time. Um, so the one I will add in um, from online is, um, is we have an anonymous questioner asks, should the Treasury seek to fund a specialised central analytical research team to build high-skilled analytical jobs to improve the ability to react quickly to new analytical challenges? Um, so that's one, which I think we, we do pick up on our reports. on. <laughs> yeah, everyone say, yeah. Um, so... Charles, I'll come to you first. I think some of those were specifically for you. So, perhaps in particular, you could pick up on Kitty's question about what Treasury should have done differently, and Josh's question on the extent to which the Treasury <coughs> looked at debt management um, and spoke to the Bank of England at the time. Um, so, I'll come to you first. Oh, uh, uh, You seem to be muted. Just,
2: just, just, thank, thank you. I'm happy to answer those points. I'd also just like to pick up that point about truth to power. Um, I left at the end of June um, of last year when Rishi Sunak was still the Chancellor. So what I said related to my experience in the Treasury, I just wanted to say that I too was shocked uh, by the dismissal of my colleague and friend, Sir Tom Scholar. And um, that was the wrong, I think that was a terrible outcome. And I think that was not good for the civil service. But I believe the Treasury has bounced back from that. And everything I hear now is that it's back to normal. But just wanted to put that on the record. Um, uh, Debt management first. um, I mean, the debt management office is one of the unsung heroes of this crisis. They did an amazing job of financing, uh, this, uh, enormous need. So well done to Sir Robert stamen and his colleagues in debt management office. Um, uh, we, we, they, they raised the money the best way they judged it to do in the rights of tenors and where the demand was. And they have an amazing record of raising money for the government, um, and, uh, we followed their judgment as to what the right maturities were to raise, where the demand was and the money. So we went with our normal model of using the money. Compared to other countries, we do have quite long tenor debt. So um, that, that helps. But there wasn't a sort of fundamental shift of strategy other than that um, Sir Robert and his team had to raise a lot of debt quickly at the time, and they did it brilliantly. What, in hindsight, would we have done differently? Um, it's a very difficult question. I think the things that I wished we had had um, data is one, and I know h m r c just recently consulted on that we we didn 't have all the data we needed um, to understand um, you know where people worked or what their occupations were um, we didn 't have household level data, so that is something I think would have been useful to have had, which we didn't and I think one of the interventions which we had some of, but not all of them, and we designed that speed. Uh, I wish we would had those um, ready on the shelf at the beginning of the pandemic. The good news is. That they will be ready on the shelf for future Treasury officials because we made sure we documented them all with simple um, playbooks and instructions of how to rerun these uh, interventions again. So we'll be better placed next time. But I, I wish we'd had more of the tools on the shelf at the beginning.
1: Thank you very much. Um, Charlie, do you want to pick up on Kitty's question about reducing scarring? Uh,
5: yes. I, I, it's not easy to see any um, specifically pandemic related. Uh, intervention that would have helped here. Uh, It it does to to a degree depend on why exactly these older workers have chosen to leave the labour force but my read is a lot of them basically it's a lifestyle uh, decision partly prompted by the pandemic I'd say it's very good at concentrating one's thoughts on one's own mortality Uh, and you start thinking well do I really want to keep on working Till I'm 75 or whatever. Um, and I don't think you could have avoided that by uh, you know, any different structuring in the furlough scheme or anything like that. Uh, that said, I do think some uh, government policies have facilitated it, particularly early access uh, to, uh, to pensions haven't, uh, haven't helped. Um, can, I, can I just make a, a comment on de- uh, debt management? Hmm. Uh, since uh, Charles has obviously focused on what the DMO did, but of course there's another element to this, which is what the Bank of England did, which was buying pretty much the same quantity of debt that was being newly issued in the secondary uh, market, which certainly made it easier for the DMO uh, to um, uh, deliver. Uh, I should say I think the bank's monetary policy decisions were were misguided here uh, i could see the argument for quantitative easing uh, early on in uh, 2020 when there was turmoil in financial markets but it was not obvious why they should have continued at such volume for so long if you think about what a pandemic does the lockdowns it screws down on both demand and supply by roughly the same order of magnitude it doesn't open up at a uh, an obvious output gap. So the argument for substantial monetary support seemed to me rather, uh, rather missing. So I think there's a question mark about the Bank of England's engagement here. Um, uh, th- there's finally your, your long uh, but very specific question uh, about should the Treasury have a high-quality analytic team. Yes. Yes. <laughs> uh, the problem is for them to hang on to those people. And, of course, there's been a history of people uh, at the Treasury early on in their careers. I'm one uh, who's then left uh, uh, pastures which seem greener elsewhere. But uh, I do think the Treasury would benefit from uh, a, a, an in-house, high-powered, flexible analytic team.
1: Tracy, do you want to pick up on that question and any of the others? Well,
4: I, I think the, the key thing for me <coughs> is... You know, some of that analysis is going to be needed in the moment and you're going to work it out and so on, but I do think there needs to be a bigger public conversation about what is being monitored and what's being analysed and what the outcomes of that, you know, are. Because and maybe, you know, I press for a transparency of evidence standard so that it's not kind of up to civil servants in the moment to try and decide what's going to play well in the press, but actually uh, there's a stronger guidance about what should be published. I do think that... it important for the public to know, not just to know that their information or how the decision has been reached, but to know that certain information has been taken into account. I mean, from my end, I'm dealing with loads of conspiracy theories about what information was in and was out and, you know, what they've been listening to and all the rest of it. It would be really nice to actually be be able to defend good decision making because I knew what the government uh, was listening to because it was said but it wasn't. It was all very secretive and it was not good enough. And I think, you know, there are things to be learned there on the economic side from, from where the science was. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I would be frustrated if that wasn't a discussion that the, the Treasury now led you know, rather than sort of be pulled along to, but there's, the Treasury has an opportunity to talk about what does need to be monitored more and what we should, the public should expect to be able to see in the evidence behind policy um, and, you know, and, and also what kind of analysis is needed. So I just think Treasury's got a big role to play there potentially for something quite profoundly
1: beneficial for the future. Great. Thank you. Rushnow, were there any other questions you want to pick up on? Well,
0: I, I mean, just on debt management, I think, and the point about, I mean, at the time when the Bank of England went down the QE, QE route, the interest rates were very low, and I and I think there was a real kind of they were taken a, by most people were taken a by, by surprise, but we should have prepared for that. The interest rates couldn't stay low indefinitely, and there was a debate. We had this debate um, about whether inflation, uh, the whether whether the inflation was going to be transitory or not. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the Americans were saying it would be, and then, uh, but there was a sort of there was a sort of determination to stick to this belief that it was transitory. Um, and once again, and we've had these discussions a number of times with the current Bank of England governor. Once again, what became clear, and in a way, I suppose we've all got to learn from this, is. Events. It's events, dear boy, or dear girl. Um, uh, That the events of Ukraine uh, and and the rest of it took everybody by surprise again. So having had the pandemic, perhaps we should have just uh, expected events like that to destabilize uh, the the economic sphere. Uh, And that's another important lesson for government, Treasury and uh, Bank of England to reflect on. Um, Because it's no good saying, well, we didn't see, nobody could have predicted Uh, the Ukraine conflict. Correct. Um, We didn't believe that it could happen. Um, But it happened. So can we do more around shocks? Um, The other shock that we didn't talk about... Is we entered into the pandemic with having left the European Union, of course, and it's having a knock-on effect now in terms of recovery because our economy is being hit by four or five percent, depending three to five percent, depending on how you look at it, um, on uh, output, economic output. So we're going, we're coming out of it much weaker in terms of access to markets. And the final thing I'd say is about politics. It doesn't matter. I mean, we have amazing civil servants. I mean, I commend them for what they do and what they, you know, and I'm lucky enough to have worked in the civil service for a period, um, very long time ago. Um, and, you know, we are very lucky um, to have the, the public servants that we have. But what we weren't lucky with, I'm afraid, is some of the people in politics at the time, at the top of government, there were some very good people and there were people who... Just actually made it very difficult to do the things we're talking about. So you can have all the evidence on the planet, but if at the political level people don't respect their respective positions and role, and there are abuses of power, and there are, you know, things don't function in the with the respect of constitutional arrangements. Um, as we've seen in the last few years, it's a very unusual time in politics that, that we've experienced as well. That makes everything much more difficult for officials. Um, you know, Charles is saying he's, he's had good chancellors who, who ha- he's been able to speak truth to power, but as he acknowledges, he, you know, one of his colleagues was kicked out by the, the, the chancellor the, that was in the Liz Truss government. We just can't have that, and we need to restore... Um, credibility and uh, probity uh, and, and you know, decency in our politics so that we don't have this sort of chaotic model where constitutional norms aren't respected. And that, that, in the last few years, has really affected the way then Whitehall operates, not just the Treasury, but there are other departments. So I think there's a piece of work, as a politician, you'd expect me to say this, but it's really important that we recognise that you know, that's where the, the, the political classes and the way political systems operate, the way, you know, whether abuses happen, whether a prime minister of the day, you know, uh, actually takes action when, when ministers are breaking rules or permanent secretaries are being forced out or bullied, as we saw in the Home Office and so on. Uh, if those consistent rules and, and the principles um, that, that are required for public standards and public office... And not adhered to and are not implemented by the person at the top of government, the prime Minister of the day, then that makes it so much harder to operate for officials. so this is a kind of I suppose it's a shout out for public servants that politics needs to do better and be better, and senior politicians, uh, prime ministers of the day, with their cabinet, need to do better.
1: fantastic, and that 's certainly something that we at the Institute of Government are very interested in as well. Um, Olly, do you have any final words?
3: Uh, I was just going to say something briefly about that last question on a uh, specialist analytical unit in the Treasury. Um, yes, I think it's a great idea, but the Treasury is already doing it. It has an analytical project unit that is established in the past few years. That's very welcome. One of the main things we say in our report, though, is it's not necessarily about having a specialist unit, but having the uh, structures in place that attract the skills that you want In that specialist unit. The Treasury attracts lots and lots of talented people. It's a great place to work. But there are important ways in which um, it doesn't attract very deep specialist skills, for example, in, in quantitative economics, which were needed during the pandemic. One is ability to publish your work, which is very important to a lot of academics. Another is pay. The other is management structure. You can only be senior if you manage a lot of people also, not just the Treasury. Um, I think we need sort of uh, this sort of uh, skill and capability in the Cabinet Office as well. Yeah. That's the real lesson from the improvement in decision-making from 2021. Finally, it's about how you bring external expertise in as well as what you have in-house, particularly when the analytical challenge is overwhelming like it was during the pandemic. I think even if the Treasury recruited another 50 very specialist economists, they'd probably still have benefited from a more structured way to bring in external expertise.
1: Fantastic, thank you. And apologies for keeping you a bit over time, but it's been a really fascinating discussion and lots more we could have carried on with. Um, Huge thanks to Charles Roxburgh for joining us um, from the US. Thank you very much. Um, Thank you also for our other panellists, Roshnara, Tracy, Charlie, and my colleague Ollie, and thank you to all of you for coming. Thank Thank
3: Thank you.